Bibles, we're in Mark chapter 4, finishing up this chapter of Mark. So yes, as I mentioned in the prayer, this is the moment in Mark's gospel in which Jesus calms the storm. And so probably everyone in here has heard this story. You're, you're familiar with this moment. If you are here today and you've never read a single page of the Bible, it's likely you still have heard of this story and know what happens, right? There's, uh, there's a, that stereotypical understanding, uh, at least, that exists in our culture that everybody just knows this moment when Jesus and his disciples are on a boat and they get caught in a storm and those, the, the, those knucklehead disciples all think they're going to die. And boy, it's it just by the grace of God, they, they wake up Jesus just in the nick of time. He gets up and, and rebukes that storm and saves the day. And, and then the stereotypical way then to apply that moment in Scripture is we say what? Well, aren't... Are there storms in your life? Well, you, you bet there is, and you better you know, run to Jesus and cry out before it's too late so he can get, you can wake him up just in time uh, to fix all the problems in your life. Don't be like those knucklehead disciples. And that's it, right? Bada boom, bada bing. We're ready to go get Mexican food right now. That's, that's pretty much the gist of it, right? Well, honestly, that's not, that's not, a, terrible, that's not a terrible sermon. Um, it, it's, it's just that there's a, there's a lot of truth here. A lot of truth, and if you settle for that stereotypical understanding and that, that stereotypical application of this moment, then you've just settled for the appetizer and you've not gotten to the main course. You must be famished. So let's make sure that we really dig into this moment and let's understand it well because I think there's a lot of understanding that God intends for us to have from the moment in which Jesus calms the storm. So let's back up for a second. Where are we? Context, context, context. I'm always preaching context. Uh, you don't want to ever just pluck a moment out and try to understand it without its context. Jesus has had a long day up until this moment. He's getting ready to calm this storm, but he has had a long, long day. I've been preaching about it for weeks. What's happened in this one day leading up to this moment? Well, it started with those stinking scribes who traveled all the way from Jerusalem just to give Jesus a hard time. Everywhere Jesus goes and preaches, those scribes and Pharisees seem to show up and criticize him. You're probably casting out demons by the power of Satan himself, by Beelzebul. He's being criticized. That kind of makes for a bad day, right? That kind of makes, when, when you're being unfairly criticized. That just makes for an extra long day. What else has happened in that day? Well, his mother and his brothers, they've traveled all the way from Nazareth just to kind of find him and, and, and basically inform him that he's out of his mind. Look at all the attention you're getting, Jesus. You're getting attention from the, from the wrong people sometimes, and the Herodians are, and the Pharisees are probably plot, plotting to kill you right now. You're getting too much attention. You just need to come home. Let's just take you back home where it's safe. You're out of your mind. Man, that makes for a long day, right? When you're not on the same page with your family, an extra long day. And then he's been teaching all day long. The masses are gathering. And as we've discussed, these crowds are gigantic. This is not just a couple hundred people showing up. We're talking about tens of thousands of people everywhere Jesus goes to the point in which when he preaches to them, he has to be strategic about where he even stands and teaches. He preaches on the shoreline. And, and, and that's just to keep the crowd all in front of him. And, and so the crowd doesn't crush him. And Peter, 
is waiting in a boat in case things get bad. He can take Jesus and put him on the boat. Then they get the idea, hey, these crowds are so big. Stand on the boat and just preach to these crowds from the boat. And so he's been preaching all day the parable of the sower, the parable of the growing seed, the parable of the mustard seed. He's been teaching and teaching and teaching. And then even beyond that teaching, he takes his disciples aside and explains everything to them just so they can have additional understanding. It says privately to his own disciples he explained everything in, in chapter 4, verse 34. So he's had a long day. A lot of stuff has happened. He's exhausted. Reasonably, he's just absolutely exhausted after a day like that. Don't you just, oh, man, you just can't wait to lay your head on the pillow and go to sleep. I bet you he could sleep through anything right now. It's, he's getting ready to sleep through a storm. That's, sorry. Okay, let's get to it here. Mark chapter 4, thank you. <laughs> Mark chapter 4, verse 35 through 36. Let's get going. This is Jesus calms the storm. On that day, the day we've just been talking about, when evening had come, he said to them, let's go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was. And other boats were with them. And so, again, he's teaching to the masses. He's preaching to them on the shoreline. He's on the boat so he can probably be elevated a little bit and he can address them all, speaking loudly, being able to teach to all of them. And it says that evening came and they were, they were ready to, to get up out of there. Well, you can't go that way. There's 10,000 people. So let's go this way. Just stay on the boat, Jesus. They just took him as he was in that moment, just took him on the boat and they just started to go away. Uh, there were other boats with them. Why is that? Who was with them? Well, you know, you got the, at least the 12 disciples. But you know, Jesus had more than 12 disciples. We learned that in the Gospels. He, several disciples followed Jesus, but the 12 were special. They had the authority to teach with his authority and had the authority to do certain miracles and, and things like that. So maybe they needed more than one boat for the 12 disciples. Maybe they needed more than one boat because there were more than just the 12 disciples here. We're not sure. But there was an archaeological dig in 1986. This is mentioned in a lot of different uh, commentaries that I, I try to read weekly. A lot of them pointed to this moment, like when you, there was an archaeological dig that found a boat that was, hey, this, this looks like it's from the first century. Uh, it's probably going to tell us exactly what type of boats they typically use when they fish and stuff like that. And, and they carbon dated it, and sure enough, it came from the first century. It was 27 feet long, and it held about 15 people. So there was enough for all 12 disciples in this boat. And, uh, but there were multiple boats, so it's likely there were more than just the 12 disciples here. I just, these are the kind of things that interest me when I'm reading and studying this stuff. You know, the size of the boat matters. So we're, typically, you know, when you see a painting of this moment, you see a painting of Jesus, and they're on this little rowboat, you know. And, and so this is probably something bigger than a rowboat. It's not a yacht, but it's a significant-sized uh, boat. So let's, let's continue in verse 37. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat so that the boat was already filling. This boat gets caught in a storm. We already knew that was going to happen, right? I don't think I spoiled that right earlier. We knew this was going to happen. These are experienced fishermen on a boat, and they get caught in a storm. Did they not check the weather app before they got on the boat? 
What are they thinking? Now, there's something we need to understand about the geography there in the sea, at the Sea of Galilee where they are at. Uh, so I, need, I, I figure I should probably have a disclaimer. I am not a meteorologist, but I can read. And from what they tell me, here's what's going on at the Sea of Galilee. This, first of all, is a lake. This sea is like a lake. As a matter of fact, it's called Lake Tiberias. It had kind of two names going on. And so it's a 64-square-mile lake. And this lake is special compared to every other lake on the planet Earth that it sits lower than any other freshwater lake on the planet, about 700 feet below sea level. There's only one other lake that sits lower than that. It's, it's a saltwater lake. It's the, dead, it's the Dead Sea, which is like 70 miles south of there. But anyway, so the Sea of Galilee, a freshwater lake fed by the Jordan River, fed by natural springs and things like that, and it sits 700 feet below sea level, and it's surrounded by cliffs. There's a lot of cliffs around the entire uh, sea. And so what you have here, again, not a meteorologist, but from what they tell me, you have a lot of hot air that tends to, to stay above that water when the sun's beating down on the Sea of Galilee. It builds hot air, and then the cool air comes over those cliffs, and when that cool air rushes over those cliffs and collides with that warm air, boom, you got a storm suddenly. And so this particular place on the planet is prone to sudden and violent storms because of those dynamics that are happening there. And so in this moment, these experienced fishermen, they probably know that the Sea of Galilee is notorious for storms like these, but this one catches them off guard because, again, it can happen so unexpectedly. And so no matter how experienced you are, these could catch you off guard. And so here they are out in this windstorm, and the windstorm has whipped up the waves to the point in which water is coming on to the boat. They are taking on water in the boat as they're trying to get to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. It's filling with water. They're starting to sink. So have you ever been in a boat far from the shore starting to sink? Has anybody ever been in a boat, sunk a boat? I was really close one time. I've got a couple people. I was in a boat one time when I was 13 years old with my dad. We are not experienced boaters. <laughs> it was kind of a, a really spontaneous moment. My dad and I, just he, he and I went out west. My dad loves to travel out west. And he's like, let's explore somewhere new we've never been before. He takes me to Lake Powell, Utah. My dad, to tell you how spontaneous he was, he would literally just like, we would just start driving west. And we would just, we'll be back in a week. And we would just go there and see sights in the Grand Canyon and things like that. I mean, he would just, we just kind of roll with it. That's just who my dad is. And so we get out there. He's like, let's go to Lake Powell. We go to Lake Powell, and we're like, wow, this is beautiful. This is amazing. Hey, they rent boats here. We should rent a boat. We have no idea. We're like, we don't do any boating whatsoever. Like, my dad, he has none of these skills. <laughs> and I'm 13 at the time. And I still don't have these skills, right? So we're, we're there. And we, we, I, I see the lineup of boats. I'm like, seriously? Because my dad, like, he's kind of tightwad. I'm like, we're going to rent a boat and go out and, like, explore these canyons? He's like, yeah, it sounds cool. Let's just have an adventure today. I'm like, great. And I'm looking at these boats. There's, like, these gigantic houseboats. A lot of people get on houseboats at Lake Powell. 
uh, there's these yachts, there's these big speedboats, and I'm like, we, we're way out of our league. Awesome, let's, let's hit the throttle on that thing. And so he rents the boat. You know, you sign your life away to get one of these boats. And we go down to the dock, and we're, we're passing all the, I'm like, which one is ours? This is going to be amazing. And they start getting smaller and, and smaller and, and smaller. We pass all the big speedboats. And at the very, very end of the dock, right in the very back, there's the skiff. The, the skiff. It's the moped of the sea. It's like one of those little wee, 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 little Yamaha motor on the back there. It's the skiff. <laughs> I'm like, well, hey, it's still a boat, and we're in Lake Powell, so this is going to be awesome. We, wee, I drove that thing when I was 13, and we just took off. With no idea. Lake Powell is gigantic. We started exploring all these different canyons and, and just going back in all these crevices. It was amazing. So here we are out in the middle of uh, Lake Powell in Utah, not knowing what we're doing or where we're at. And you know how the story goes, right, By, based on why I'm telling this story. A storm. Like, we, we're on our way back, and we still have to cross the entire lake. We can see this dock off in the distance, and there's a gigantic thunderhead storm cloud, like, right at the dock. <laughs> we're like, oh, man, we're driving right towards that storm. What are we going to do? And the closer we got, we, I mean, we were out in the middle of this thing, and the waves, I just remember like sitting in the boat and I can't see over the waves. They're coming at us and we somehow barely get over it. And, and we go all the way down. We're get, I'm getting seasick. And then water, you know, sometimes the water's coming over the boat. And I'm like, we're in a skiff, right? We're in the skiff. The skiff is not like giving me a lot of confidence. We're going to survive. And so we literally, it starts pouring down rain. I'm like, oh, okay, well, this is where we die, Dad. You just had, we had to go on an adventure today. We're going to die now. <laughs> so we're trying to get to a, the shore. We see a cave, and we're like, you know, it's like the spree moped trying to get to the, the shore. And, oh, man, we just barely, it, was an, it really was an adventure. I'll never forget, like, like, that's the moment Dad and I almost died. And uh, so, seeing, seeing the look of fear in your old man, right? Like, oh, man, he's scared. We're, we're doomed. <laughs> but we had no idea what we're doing. We had no idea. It, it can make you feel so helpless when you're in the water and you can't control the things that are happening. And, but these men did know what they were doing. These, this is Peter, Andrew, James, and John, right? These are fishermen. They made a living on the boats, in the water. They knew how to deal with this stuff. These are... It, this, these are experienced fishermen who knew what they were doing, and they're panicking, right? They're panicking. And, and, and so it's interesting that the fishermen, the people that made a, lot, a living on the boat are, are panicking, but there's one person on the boat who's not an experienced fisherman, and he's not panicking. He's the carpenter. It's, it's Jesus. He's asleep. Look at verse 38. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion, and they woke him and said, teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? Oh, man, that question. Like, first of all, they're in the stern. And if you're like me, you don't know anything about boating. Don't you hate that boaters, like, they name everything on the boat? I don't know what any of those things are. And so I'm like, okay, let's see, the stern. That's the rear of the boat, right? You got the bows, the front of the boat. The stern's the rear of the boat. He's in the rear of the boat, and, he, and he's on a cushion. He's sleeping, and then chaos strikes. And he's still asleep on that, on that cushion. So, that, okay, let's think of that stereotypical application here. When chaos strikes, are you more like the disciples or are you more like Jesus? 
Well, it depends. Am I on a boat, on a boat ready to die? You know, you remember the, the entire day has been chaos for Jesus up to this point. He's exhausted. I mean, in, in some sense, the storm is symbolic of the, the entire day that he's just experienced. He's asleep on this cushion in the midst of a storm, somehow not throwing up from the waves and things like that. Not getting wet, maybe? I don't know. What was he thinking about? What was he dreaming about? Was he meditating on verses like Psalm 4-8, where it says, In peace I will both lie down and sleep, for you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. <sighs> what a great verse. Or maybe, maybe he's just exhibiting what happens to a person who has extreme wisdom. What is what does Proverbs teach us about one who is wise? Well, it says in Proverbs 3.24, if you lie down, you will not be afraid. When you lie down, you will sleep, and your sleep will be sweet. When I hear a verse like that, I'm like, oh, man, maybe I'm not as wise as I thought I was. Sometimes I don't sleep that great. So that Jesus is, is, is asleep, and, the, and the, the disciples are in full survival mode, grabbing buckets, trying to stay afloat. And, and it doesn't say which disciple uh, rebukes Jesus. This is a full-blown rebuke, by the way. I mean, do you even care that we're perishing? I, if I have to put money on it, if I'm a betting man, I'm betting this is Peter. And just, I, I love moments with Peter, but, you know, this is, this is the gospel of Mark. And this, is, you, this, this response, this rebuke to Jesus in this story is uh, unique to, to Mark, and Mark is recording Peter's account. I just bet you this is Peter. Because, and it just fits his personality and how he behaves. D teacher, do you even care that we're perishing? <laughs> Think about that. It's not, hey, Jesus, grab a bucket, buddy. We're going to die. It's not, hey, sleepyhead, come on, man, help us out. You're the only one not working here. No, he goes straight for the jugular. Do you even care that we are dying right now? He rebukes Jesus. So now on, on this side of the gospel, this is audacious, right? This is incredible. Are you kidding me? You just ask Jesus if he cares about you. This is Jesus, the, the creator and sustainer of the universe who enters his creation to die for his people. Does he care about you? He entered his creation to, to redeem us and die for and, and be crushed for our iniquities. And you have... You have the guts to say, do you even care about us? How could he say something so stupid? Well, we know exactly how he can. Because we've all probably been there in those moments of chaos, even though we are on the other side of the gospel. Even though we did grow up learning the gospel. We have those moments where we're just, we're sinking. Man, we just feel like we can't keep our head above water. The boat's full of water. The boat's already sank. We're, we're paddling. We're just trying to stay alive. That's how we feel a lot of times. And you have those moments where you're just like, God, do you even care? You're all powerful. Your word says you can create. You can fix anything. How am I in this mess then if you love me? Do you even care about me? Have you, have you been there? You can fix this. Wake up, wake up, wake up. We get so hard on, on the disciples, call them knuckleheads, but here we are on the other side of the gospel, knowing that Jesus died for our sins, knowing that he cares for us, knowing that he is God, and yet we find ourselves in the same, in the same boat, right? How could you ever think he doesn't care for us? You know, sometimes I think when it comes to moments like this, and we think about those stereotypical applications, 
we think about what we learn from this moment, I think it's helpful sometimes to think about what we don't learn from this moment, what this doesn't teach. Here's some things I wrote down that, that this story doesn't teach us. The, the lesson we don't learn here, it's not saying don't ever, get, don't ever get worked up in chaotic times. If you get worked up in chaotic times, there's something wrong with you. It's not teaching that. It's not teaching us if you're stressed, you must be doing something wrong. If you're not calm, you must be doing something incorrect. If you're experiencing a storm in life, it's because you haven't cried out to Jesus. It's not teaching that. Haven't you experienced those storms in life and cried out to Jesus like a thousand times and you're not getting the answer you want? It's not that you're not crying out to Jesus. Well, this story isn't teaching those things. In fact, if it, if it were just trying to communicate those things, and, and again, some of, the, some of those thoughts aren't all bad, it's just shallow. And if we allow it to remain in that shallow place, well, if we're consistent, we'd start to make the argument that Jesus was shallow at times because isn't the polar opposite moment just down the road in the Gospel of Mark where Jesus is the one who's in a storm of life getting ready to get arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane, and he's praying, and he's stressed, he's in physical agony, he's in emotional distress. It says that he's greatly distressed and troubled. He says, my soul is sorrowful even to death. He's stressed out of his mind in prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane. What are the disciples doing? They're sleeping. They're the ones sleeping in that moment. And so if we just have this shallow understanding of, of Jesus calming the storm, if we just have that shallow understanding, would we not say to Jesus in that moment, hey, buddy, what are you stressed out about? You got little faith or something? The disciples, they're sleeping and, and you're the one stressed. Are, are you the one with little faith now? Well, of course not. Of course not. That would be blasphemy even to think that, right? But we don't want to have a shallow understanding of this story because well, A, uh, you know, we don't want to portray Jesus like that, but B, this, this story has so much more for us than that. So much more for us. You know, when it comes to bad times in life, those storms in life, they're, they're not necessarily a direct result of your lack of faith. You need to understand that. Just because you go through bad times, it isn't necessarily a result of your lack of faith. It can be, but it isn't necessarily emotional responses to those hard times in life. They aren't necessarily a direct result of your lack of faith, you know. But I think what we learn in moments like the Garden of Gethsemane and the moment in which Jesus calms the storm is that it's not so much that, like, you're, you're, you're faithing wrong and that's why you're in bad circumstances. It's, it's how do you feel about God when you're in the midst of those circumstances? How do you understand God when you're in that storm? There's the key. There, there's, there's the main course that Scripture has for us. How do you feel about God when those storms hit? How do you understand him when those storms hit? You know, at the height of Christ's distress in the Garden of Gethsemane, his disciples had given in to sleep, yet he was in prayer saying this, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. His physical distress is real. His emotional pain, it's real. But his understanding of God, 
is true to God's word. God is sovereign. He is in control. How he felt about God was scriptural, and it gave him this way forward. Whereas the distress of the disciples, right, it's different. How are they facing certain death in that boat when the storm's there and threatening their life? Jesus, do you even care about me? What's your problem? See the difference there? It's those storms in life, they can be so valuable to us because they expose what people really believe. You want to know what someone really believes, observe them in the midst of a storm in life. That's when you really find out. Like some of you are in a storm right now, some of you aren't. Here's the reality of, of a pastor's life. When you see a congregation, there's, there's always someone in the storm. Like, you may, you may not have gone through a storm recently, or maybe it's been years and you're in a good season of life. There's always somebody in the bad season. And so from a pastor's vantage point, you're just always watching someone getting beat up by the waves, looking for the bucket, trying to get water out of the boat. You're always watching someone, like, just flail and, and, and flop around and try to survive, keep their head above water. Um, but, but, but those moments are, are important for us. Because just like Peter, like, what it did, it... His physical and emotional pain in the midst of that storm, it distorted the way he felt about Jesus and started to convince him that Jesus didn't care about him. And we can do the same thing and make the same mistakes when those storms of life hit us. Let's continue here. Let's continue here in, in verses 39 and 41. And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, be still, or peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. He said to them, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one, or, one another, who then is this, that even the wind and the sea obey him? So Peter, Peter, I think it's Peter, Peter rebukes Jesus, Jesus wakes up and rebukes the storm, and then Jesus rebukes the disciples. And so the big takeaway, I, I think, in Mark, you know, again, if it's, if it's just that God can calm the storms of your life, you'd be neglecting the, the truth that is equally helpful and true, that God can cause and use the storms in your life. That's what he did with the disciples. He's using this storm. This storm has a purpose. You know, we learned this in the Old Testament before we get to this point. I, I, I think of that amazing verse in Ecclesiastes when King Solomon says this, and this is what Jesus believes. In the day of prosperity, be joyful. And in the day of adversity, consider that God has made the one as well as the other. God's still sovereign over the bad days, just like he is over the good days. So I don't think this moment in Scripture is by chance. I don't think this was an accident that they're out on this storm. I think God caused it to happen. I think God caused this storm to happen to teach them what they did believe about Jesus and to teach them what they should believe about Jesus. And that's how it can operate in our lives too. And that's why those storms can be so valuable. Had that storm not happened, they would not have been able to stop and think, who then is this that the wind and the sea obey him? Right? It, it, it wasn't just that Jesus calmed the storm as if to say, like, oh, oh, no, settle down, buddy. We don't want to die today. No, it's that he told the storm what to do, and the storm did it. The storm obeyed him. Who does he think he is? Only God can do that, right? Only God can do that. 
He's part of the Godhead. And so it took that storm for the disciples to understand. So storms, storms reveal truth. I think that, that that's another big takeaway from this moment. That, that's the depth of this passage is that storms reveal truth. And sometimes we need those storms or we're not going to ever understand or take to heart those truths. And it's interesting that sometimes when you watch people go through these storms, how they react. Sometimes you'll see people who go to church their entire life and they profess to be a Christian their entire life. And when a storm hits, all of a sudden they're not a believer anymore. All of a sudden they're walking away. All of a sudden it's exposed, it's revealed that they never were really bought in to the biblical message. But then other times you see people that seem to be on the fringes or not in the church at all, that when they hit turbulent times, when they get caught in the storm... They have truth revealed to them in the most profound way. How many testimonies have you heard in your life where someone tells you about the most awful situation they've ever gone through in life, and yet it was at rock bottom that they found Jesus? It was at rock bottom in which God does a work in their hearts and reveals who he is to them in a way that they never understood him before. So many people who have gone, that when their testimony is like that, so many of them will even say to you when they're, when they're explaining this moment, they'll even say, I'm so thankful that that happened to me. Even though it was the worst moment in their life, they'll say, I'm so thankful that that awful circumstance was something that I had to live through because I found my relationship with God in that. He broke me. He broke me to pieces at the bottom of that pit, and it changed my life. And now I live for him. And now I have hope in Jesus. Because storms sometimes are so necessary for people to know God in a way they didn't previously know him. So it's not that Jesus can just calm a storm. He can. It's that Jesus can use the storm. And that's where we get our hope. So you know, suffering, suffering rightly, I think, even through the midst of those storms is something we need to understand. It gives us that solidarity that we can have with Christ who suffered for our sins. This is where we can connect and relate to him in a profound way. Okay, so think about this. Peter's in this boat, whether it was him who rebuked Jesus or not. Peter is in this boat, and he's a part of the consensus, evidently, who looked at Jesus and said, do you even care? Like, they're suffering and this is urgent. He's questioning who Jesus is and if he cared. That same guy went on to write an epistle, 1 Peter. And in 1 Peter chapter 4, listen, listen to how his tune has changed about the storms of life. He says, and this is in verse 12 through 13 of chapter 4 of 1 Peter, he says, Beloved, do not be surprised at a fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as if something strange were happening to you. Don't you love how he phrases that? What's the matter with you? You think storms aren't going to happen? You think trials aren't going to happen? No, God uses these. I know this. He used, he used a literal storm in my life. That trial about killed me. I'm so thankful for it now, though. He continues, listen, listen to how he says you should think about these moments. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Because God's glory is revealed through suffering. He goes on to say at the end of that, that chapter, therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will, wait a second, people suffer according to God's will? Well, of course, he's sovereign, so yes. 
Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. So that storm had a profound impact on Peter, right, and how he views suffering and storms. That moment where he got to witness Jesus praying in the garden and he couldn't even stay awake to keep praying with him must have had a profound impact on him because he understood that storm in the Garden of Gethsemane was a storm of evil and persecution and it took Jesus to the cross and it killed him. Yet that same storm, Peter would later preach in Acts and he would say that Jesus, he was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. God caused that storm and it resulted in our salvation. God uses storms. He tells a storm to stop and it stops. He uses those moments to reveal and, and teach us things. And so I thought it was important to mention that in this moment because if we just have that shallow understanding, I think we just, we just get it all wrong. It's more than just Jesus can calm the storms. It's that Jesus uses storms. And so I hope that brings you hope. Because today, I know some of you are in that storm. You're in that season of life in which you're full of anxiety and you're thinking, man, am I not praying enough? Do I not have enough faith? I'm depressed. I've gone through this season. It just feels horrible. I got this, this obstacle in my life. I just can't quite get over that obstacle. Does God even care? Or is God using these moments? Is God creating possibly these moments very purposefully so that you could have a truth revealed to you in a more profound way, in a way that would truly stick and change your life and bring you into relationship with him for eternity? We know that because God is sovereign, we can have hope in the worst of storms. We can not only have hope, we can rejoice. We can entrust our souls no matter what, because he is the creator and sustainer of the universe. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for this moment in scripture that we can so quickly read through and not glean everything from. Sometimes we just so hastily read through scripture and we don't pray through it and think about it and consider it in the scope of all of scripture. Lord, this moment is so profound. We know that, Lord, we can cry out to you in the midst of the storm. And, Lord, when we cry out to you, there are times in which you will stop that storm. You will answer our prayers. You will save us in the midst of those storms. Lord, that is true, and that is a wonderful, amazing truth. We're thankful for that truth. But, Lord, we also know that there's truth beyond that that where there is the truth that you are sovereign over all storms. You are all powerful, therefore if a storm happens, maybe because of someone else's sin or because of my sin, Lord, but if you allow it to happen, Lord, you can stop it if you want. That's, that's what it means to be all powerful. But Lord, you can even use brokenness and take us through those storms created by brokenness and redeem us in the midst of it. We know that because that's what happens in the gospel. Our brokenness that has corrupted this world and took you, took you to the cross, Lord. You used that to save us, to redeem us. 
so we can have the hope in the midst of any circumstance. Lord, I pray for those here today that are in that storm, that are just exhausted from a season of depression, that are exhausted because of a season of anxiety. They can feel it, Lord, physically in their chest. They can feel it emotionally in their head. They wake up in the morning and it's waiting on them. They go to sleep thinking about it. Lord, I just pray, Lord, that they would have hope today from this moment in Scripture that you are sovereign over the storms. Lord, I hope that, that they, can, they can understand this truth in a way that will be so profound that, that their understanding of you would not change, Lord, but that they would, their understanding of you would give them hope, that they would entrust their souls to you. And it's your name, Jesus, we pray.